If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Matthew McLaughlin. I'm Steve Pride and our special celebrity guest host is Marlo Bernier. Welcome very much. Thank you for jumping in here tonight. Thank you. We my had pleasure. you down as a guest to talk about Myrna. Thank the you. Fabulous, fabulous pilot that we ha- saw a few months ago. Yeah. But now you're back and it's going to be play at, play at a major film festival. It is. It is. Town. Wednesday evening premiere, world premiere, 7 p.m. at the Arclight. I want to see it on the big screen. We'd love to have you. It'll look a lot better than on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> you're not the only one. But thanks for jumping in. Also, we have tonight Bambi. Salcedo. Salcedo is the founder I, I of the, the trans. I, I almost had that. I've taken Spanish for several years, but I've still never fully passed. Or I've gotten, eaten Spanish food, but it's not the same thing. <laughs> we also have Justin Vivian Bond, singer songwriter, author, painter, performance artist, occasional actor, genderqueer, and radical fairy. But right now we have. Holly Woodlawn has been in the hospital for a while. Oh, yeah. And she is finally out at home and. and uh, She's doing okay. Right. She is amazing. And many years ago, one of my first assignments was to interview her at her home in West Hollywood. And basically, I turned on the recorder, and I didn't actually—I don't think I asked an actual question. You don't have to. Holly is really her I own I won three show. awards for that interview, and they kept saying, yeah. how did you get that out of her? It's like, trust me, it wasn't hard. Gender-bending pioneer Holly Woodlawn shot to fame in a 1970 Andy Warhol film called Trash. Cast as the offbeat girlfriend of a good-looking junkie, played by Warhol favorite Joe D'Alessandro, her debut was critically lauded. It was at the height of Warhol's popularity and the success of Trash thrust underground movies into the light, where they quickly became legitimized as independent films. Holly Woodlawn's performance is made all the more remarkable by the fact that in this film, made shortly after the Stonewall riots, she completes the job of leading lady with no allusion to her biological gender. Now, 30 years later, Trash has been remastered and re-released. I took this occasion to drop by Holly's West Hollywood apartment for a chat about Trash, Andy Warhol, and her walk on the wild side. Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey, 
Take a walk on the wild side. I just wanted to go to New York, get out of Florida. So I only had $11 to my name, and uh, I took a bus to a little city outside of, um, uh, Atlanta called Brunswick, where um, the bus driver threw me off the bus, and uh, I, there was a, a thunderstorm going on that night. So I, I seeked shelter in this little motel on the side of the road, and I was struck by lightning. Yes. And, and so the uh, proprietors of the motel gave me a free room that night, and that's when I shaved my legs and plucked my eyebrows. And I, you know, I haven't been the same since. So the next day, I stuck my finger out and started hitchhiking. A week later, I landed in New York City, and uh, five years later, I met Andy Warhol. Well, actually, Paul Morrissey. He's the one that um, uh, filmed Trash. I was hanging out at Max's Kansas City, where, well, you know, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, you know, all the Warhol crowd were, were hanging out. 1969, that, that year, a lot of stuff happened. A Man in the Moon, you know, the Sharon Tate murders. I mean, Robert Kennedy, the Stonewall. Uh, so that was quite a year for, for America. And I was right in the middle. And they were shooting this movie, and I guess I, I was typecast as a lowlife. <laughs> Garbage-picking lowlife. No, but um, uh, he asked me if I would do a scene in the movie, and then that scene just like sort of like blossomed into like a co-starring role. And uh, Trash came out, um, uh, I, I was in I was in jail for that for the premiere of Trash, but that's another story. And I got these incredible reviews, and uh, the rest is history. And now, thirty years later, they're dusting me off and re-releasing it for the thirtieth um, anniversary. But uh, it's fun. It's fun to you know like just see myself thirty years later. It's like watching somebody else. You know, good memories. You know, I was right in the middle. I mean, the vortex of all that stuff. I mean, you know, the underground Warhol Studio Fifty Four, um, free love, drugs that were decent drugs. I mean, you know, not God, and still survived all that, all that insanity. Like a cockroach here, I feel already. <laughs> Tell me about the making of Trash. Trash was the first and, and, of course, the most notorious. I also did another one for Warhol, uh, another Morrissey film. I mean, everybody actually, you know, I have to get the record straight. Andy Warhol produced the movie. He just actually put his name to it. Andy was very big at that, just putting his name, you know, I mean, because he did not discover the chemical soup can. But uh, he sure made a lot of money off of it. But Paul Morrissey was the uh, the driving force, the director he did everything, uh, you know, film, filmmaker, uh, except writing the script. There was no script to um, either Trash or, um, or Women in Revolt or any, or any of Andy's movies. Uh, basically, what Paul did was just uh, he uh, picked people that had character that, you know, that were fascinating or, you know, had something to say or do on the screen and just uh, roll the camera. Paul would, you know, set up the scene. You know, like Holly in the scene, you know, you're having sex with a beer bottle because Joe won't go to sleep with you, you know. And I, of course, <laughs> being the true method actress that I am, went for it, you know. Ouch. Okay. Trash is on DVD. It's on video. It's back in the theaters. Are you making just tons of money? Oh, no, please. I, I almost choked on my Coke. Coca-Cola. Uh, uh, $25. Well, actually, for the whole movie, I made 125 because it was $25 a scene. And at that time, I just signed a release. I did. There was no contract. You know, meanwhile, the first couple weeks that Trash came out, it made several million. What made Andy Warhol special? 
You know, the whole thing, there was nothing, absolutely nothing about Warhol. I mean, Andy Warhol was as uh, as transparent and as flimsy as tissue paper. It was the people around him. It was everything around him. You know, I guess that's his genius. He was a magnet, you know. I mean, all everyone around him were the ones that were brilliant. You know, he was like no solar system like the sun where heat radiates out, you know. Andy just, he was like a black hole. Andy just went around saying, oh, how glamorous. Oh, do that. Oh, you know, I mean, he just agreed to everything, you know. And everybody else, I mean, of course, everybody was on drugs. He wasn't. And if he was, who wanted that drug? Little Joe never once gave it away. Everybody had to pay and pay A hustle here and a hustle there New York City is the place where they said Hey babe, take a walk on the wild side I said, hey Joe, take a walk on the wild side Joe D'Alessandro He, my co-star, he's, he was, in the, he was the, the, the stud in Morrissey's films Flesh, Heat, Trash yeah. They weren't big for, like, large titles. He was a sweetheart. He was very nice. And, of course, in Trash, you know, the, the, there's nudity, but it's not pornographic nudity. And, um, darling, that, that butt, that butt is held up by, well, youth, of course. <laughs> yeah. Holly, it's been 35 years since you took that trip, immortalized in the Lou Reed song, Walk on the Wild Side. How have times changed? When I was around in the 60s, that, if you did anything like that, you were arrested. I mean, there were, you know, there were laws and a lot of harassment. Now, you know, you go to New York, please. I mean, they're all over the place. It's like nothing. It's yawn, yawn, yawn. So what? So you wear a dress. And RuPaul, I mean, you know, it's like Ru's doing commercials for beer and makeup and stuff. I mean, you know. And uh, all those girls say that, you know, I was the groundbreaker, you know. Wonderful. Now now I need the money. <laughs> I'm tired of breaking ground. <laughs> I said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls say, This has been a conversation with Holly Woodlawn. Trash is a jour defeat release coming to a theater near you. Holly Woodlawn's autobiography, A Low Life in High Heels, is, as they say, soon to be a major motion picture. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Thank you. It was a lovely Sunday morning spending it with you, Stephen. Back, Hollywood Woodlawn, um, one of the most amazing women I know. Unstoppable and completely entertaining. Any word that comes out of Holly's mouth is normally going to surprise and amaze and uh, amuse for sure. And there are a lot of words. That interview was actually <laughs> a few years back, quite a few years back. And I was actually using a reel-to-reel kind of cassette recorder. I set it on the counter. It was in her apartment. We sat on the floor and... I started to ask her a question, and before I could, she started to talk. Yeah. And then an hour later, she finished talking. Yeah. She, she really needs no host. You can just let and her And I know. won like three awards for that interview, and they kept saying, how did you get her to talk like that? Like, it was really not that hard. Hit record, girl. Hit record. She She's a hero. Speaking of heroes... 
Tonight we are joined in studio by one of my personal heroes, Bembi Sosedo. No, thank you so much for the opportunity. And shout out to the audience who are listening today. Well, we all know who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, Bambi Salcedo is a very humble trans-Latina immigrant uh, who is basically fighting for the rights of trans individuals and immigrant communities, LGBT Latinos, you name it, um, incarceration, HIV, like all of those issues that obviously intersect with my personal life. I'm one that fights for You know, I've got to say, in this room, there's one person who's had a documentary done about them. It it is. Was it you, Matt? It's not me. Well, uh, none, uh, no. Tell me about uh, that as well, because that's <laughs> was pretty good. I saw that at Alpest. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, again, I you know it's hard for me to obviously you know talk about uh, myself and the things that I've done and the things that people have done. Uh, about me, but I am the subject of a uh, documentary that is called Transvisible, obviously that speaks uh, not only to my experiences, but also, um, you know, the things that I have accomplished throughout my career in activism. Well, one of the reasons that you came to mind when we were scheduling this show is you were on the news a lot last week at the United States Conference on AIDS. There was an action by you and some, the whole, whole group. Tell me about that. Well, um, you know, you know, sometimes we have to do what we have to do in order for our voices to be heard. Um, so the United States Conference on AIDS took place in Washington, D.C. Um, last week, it was um, in September the 9th, I want to say. Um, and so... You know, it was an opportunity because um, the Office of National AIDS Policy recently released the second version of the National HIV AIDS Strategy. And in the previous um, National HIV Strategy, the transgender community was mentioned in it. Um, and there was also some um, an implementation guide which, you know, said that there were some things that, you know, needed to be implemented to address the specific issues and needs of trans people around HIV. And so in this new version, it seems like the little steps that we had gained in the process, um, you know, were basically erased in some ways. And so um, we knew that this was an opportunity to call out the Office of National AIDS Policy and specifically um, uh, Mr. Brooks, uh, Douglas Brooks, who is the director of the Office of National AIDS Policy, uh, to you know, bring attention to the issue and to, you know, the fact that institutional violence continues to be perpetrated against trans people, which obviously leads for us to ultimately get killed, right? The messages that are sent through the institutions and the structures that we have within our society about trans people and how those messages translate and for us ultimately getting killed. Do they even count your numbers? Do we know how many trans people there are and how many are dealing with HIV? Well, there is um, some numbers that the Center for Disease Control has um, put together through a meta-analysis. But unfortunately, because the trans community is relatively small compared to other communities, right, um, you know, we're not sort of like highlighted per se. Uh, However, there has been studies in local cities, um, major cities like you know, Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, New York, and, and San Francisco, into which, 
it shows that the rate of HIV among trans women specifically is the highest of any other population. And this is also another, um, another fact that CDC has um, you know, declared, right, that we as trans women are one of the populations that are highly impacted by HIV. And so the fact that, you know, we are not part of a national HIV strategy, right, to address the needs and issues of our community, it's obviously, you know, devastating. And it's really like a slap in the face, right, to really, um, you know, for for these individuals to think that we, that our existence is not valid, that our issues and our needs are not, um, you know, really counted for. And so we thought that it was an opportunity for us to really address the issue and, um, you know, led the audience in which this, you know, to this conference, it's a national conference, many different um, federal agencies, uh, funders, pharmaceuticals, you know, come together. I mean, there's thousands of people there. And so um, in this particular session, uh, it was called uh, Mining the Gap. And it was um, really like talking about the issues that they needed to address. Uh, but obviously, you know, we as a community are one of those issues, and we wanted to bring attention and particularly call out um, Douglas Brooks, who is the director of Nas Office of National AIDS Policy. What is this duality that's going on? Because trans visibility has never been higher. We have Laverne Cox making speeches at colleges. We have shows like Myrna at the film festival this week. We have Caitlyn Jenner. I mean, the visibility has never been higher, but the, the fact that so many trans people are being murdered every week in this country seems to be, eh. Well, I mean, I think um, the violence against trans people, and particularly against trans women of color, you know, has been there forever, right? Like always. Um, but again, this violence has been perpetrated by the institutions and the structures that we have within our society and the govern, you know, our society. And so, you know, the only difference is now is that, you know, social media is more um, available to many people. And so people are able to record these incidents and really bring awareness about the issue. Um, and the fact that, you know, there are celebrities out there that are obviously, you know, putting a face to a community, obviously also violence has increased. Um, but I also want to say that, you know, unfortunately, the experiences of these individuals, and I can include myself in it, right? Like, I am a privileged trans woman, right? Um, and that's not the reality of many members of our community. Many members of our community continue to be um, discriminated, continue to be on the streets, uh, and really, you know, marginalized. We continue to be a marginalized community. And so the common issues of our people are not the same issues or the same livelihood or experiences of celebrities, right? So it's important to make that distinction, but it is also important to understand that violence increases with visibility, and that's what's really happening. Yeah, a rich white lady in Malibu. There's a question of race and class that enters into it as well as gender. Well, I mean, again, you know, um, particularly in communities of color, right? Like we know and see that many... Um, trans women specifically, right, transition at an earlier age, right? If we use the example of Kelly Jenner, right, she just barely transitioned at 65 years old, right? And not everybody has the ability to go to a doctor and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and just, you know, be completely feminized, 
feminize, right? And and so, you know, the reality is that Kendall Jenner will never experience what it is to be trans and take public transportation, right? Mm-hmm. It is not um, likely that she'll probably, you know, uh, take a walk down the street just by herself in the middle of the night, right? But that's the reality of our community. Many of us have to do that because we are pushed to do that. Society has pushed us into be in neighborhoods that obviously uh, put us in danger, that, you know, um, we get profiled, we get criminalized simply for who we are. And that's an experience that Kathleen Jenner probably will never experience. So what can we do, Bambi, to change the dialogue within the global community to not only reduce, but one day maybe eradicate violence against trans women, specifically trans women of color, Latina trans women, et cetera. What can we do in order to bypass, and nothing against what Caitlyn Jenner has done or isn't doing or whatever, I have nothing nothing Mm -hmm. to say in the matter. Past all of that, we have, so to speak, normal people within the normal part of our society you know, that aren't wealthy or people of privilege. And so, what, what can we do so as what well? Can, what can we do, you know, and I don't mean we meaning me. I mean, but I want to know too, obviously. But what can be done to change the dialogue in the national discourse, in the international discourse, so that those numbers will one day be eradicated? To say, and all I want to say to cap it off is, is to say that, yes, indeed, you know, uh, specifically trans women of color or Latina trans women are being, are having violent acts committed against them, oftentimes end up dead, sadly and tragically so. What can we do? What can we tell the public at large? How well, can we change this? I, I think um, that is important that we understand the context of the situation, right? And that we really make a broader analysis of where we are as a community, right? If we really look at where trans people are in terms of, um, you know, rights, in terms of legislatively, economically, academically, right? Um, We can easily say that the trans community compared to the gay and lesbian community, we are about 40 years behind, right? But I think it's also important that, you know, we contribute to changing the structures that have been governing, you know, and have been influencing the way people think, right? When we have laws, or actually when we don't have laws that protect and they acknowledge this existence of trans people, obviously that sends a message, right, that our existence is not valid, that our existence is not important in our society, right? right? Religious beliefs, right? Um, I mean, the fact that we as trans people are still included in the DSM-5, right? Like, we have a mental condition. That is an institution that continues to perpetrate violence, right? That Mm -hmm. continues to say we're crazy. I know I can tell that I'm not crazy, I mean, some people think that I'm crazy because of the things that I do, mm-hmm. but <laughs> but I'm not, you know, mentally disabled yeah. um, or menti- mentally unstable. And so I think that, you know, we collectively can definitely contribute to change those structures. And if we are able to change minds, then we're able to change hearts and then we're able to make action. And then we're able to obviously change the life, the livelihood and the quality of life of trans people. Mm-hmm.
It seems also like gay rights uh, and when you look at civil rights for black people are, you know, it's been 50 years and we're at that point right now where it's going to be 50 years before we get there. But it also it also seems that regardless of the fact that T has been appended to LGB and T, you know, that the, that it's even further behind and it's incredibly important. It's harder in some cases because LGB is all about sexuality and T is about gender. Mm-hmm. There seems to be, there has to be more education to the LGBs about what T is and to not how it relates to our struggle and how we need to get behind it. And that we're all in the same boat together to not forget, you know, that that we're all in the same ride. Let's not uh, separate. Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely. You know, I always like to refer to the era as to where trans people are. Um, We, you know, I could say that trans people are experiencing or living a modern, separate but equal era. And so I think it's important that we understand where we are and what we can do in order to change uh, the beliefs that have been perpetrated against trans people. Most definitely. Bambi, what project are you working on now? Well, you know, um, one of the things that the Trans Latina Coalition does is obviously, you know, structural changes, right? Um, So we are in the process of developing the Center for Violence Prevention and Transgender Wellness. And we are working uh, in collaboration with the city of Los Angeles. Um, More specifically, we are working together with um, Councilmember Mitchell Farrell into um, doing different things that will obviously, you know, hope hoping that will change the uh, the beliefs and attitudes against towards uh, trans people. Um, we are planning to do a, um, a day of visibility in November um, in which, you know, trans people are going to be viewed in a positive way. Um, you know, with the city of Los Angeles, we are developing a um, professional and developing uh, and the professional economic development and professional development program uh, in collaboration with the city of Los Angeles in which we are going to provide um, professional development to trans people. Um, And so we're doing a lot of work. Um, We are going to, we're in the process of, um, you know, having a place to where trans people can come to and be and access services. So uh, the Center for Violence Prevention and Transgender Wellness will be, um, you know, a a, a, a place that will obviously address the structural variants that we need to address, but also the community empowerment. So we're going to be tackling both at the same time. Is, is, there, any, is there a website or something we can go to online for more information? Yeah, people can definitely access uh, information at www.translatinacoalition.org. But I also want to give a shout out to my beautiful babies, Natalie and uh, Nathan, and also my beautiful sister, Hilda. Thank you so much for dropping by and talking to us tonight. Thank you. And thank you again for everything you do. Thank you. Brava, brava. Yeah, most certainly. (laughs) I appreciate the opportunity. And once again, shout out to all the beautiful people out there who is listening to us. Well, one of the beautiful people in my life is right here, um, Marlo Bernier. Yes. And we're going to get a little update on your project, Myrna, Mm -hmm. which was a TV pilot that... um, Hopefully we'll be on the network soon because I thought it was amazing and hilarious. But right now, it's going to be the film festival. It is. Before we get into this, I want to set up a little clip we have from it. And this is a scene where Myrna, who is an actor who used to be a male actor, is now a female actor, going out on auditions with the same resume. Mm-hmm. Myrna Michaels. Oh, hey, come on in. Hi. Thank you. How's it going? Good, how are you? Good, good. 
Nice resume. Thank you. I've read you before? Yes, but um, it's been a while. Yeah. I'm ready to get back to work now. Back? I took some time off. Ah, uh, these things happen. But you're, you're uh, healthy now? Yes. Rehab? Well, not exactly. <laughs> um, series regular on Frenemies. Uh, refresh my memory at, who did you play? Tom's neighbor. I don't remember Tom's neighbor having a wife. He didn't. I was Jeff. I was the neighbor. Michael, oh my God. I hardly recognize you. You look amazing. Thank you, and you too. And it's Myrna. Right, right. Um, and you're here to read for Joan? Yes. Oh. <laughs> what? It's just, my producers, they, they just but you, wouldn't... But you could still read me. I don't think so. Please, I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult, but I read The Breakdown, and I'm perfect for Joan. Mike, Myrna, I just, I can't. Please, just read me for Joan. Just read me. I can't. So did that ever happen to you, Marlo? Um, having a resume that says like death of a salesman, they well, what'd you play in that? <laughs> um, the better one was um, you 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 were in Angels in America parts one and two, uh -huh. oh. to which I say yes. They said you played Hannah. I say no. Harper, no. Roy, <laughs> Roy, Roy Marcus Cohn, yes. That must have been interesting. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. tell me about the journey, because the last time we talked to you, you had just had Myrna coming out for some previews. Mm -hmm. I met you at a award show, the yes. Gallica. Yeah. So we catch us up. We met at Galeca or Gallica um, at the Pikey. The Pikey. That cool was great. Bar. That is Very a great cool venue, and it was a great time we have every John year. John Griffiths did a nice, little, he always does. beautiful job. Yeah, so basically the pilot was wrapped out of post in mid-December. Then it went out to a couple of a handful, less than a handful of uh, people that we had direct connects to at networks, various networks for consideration for development and pickup. We have an entire show Bible that takes us all the way out to the end of season three. So it's not like just the pilot. We know where we're going with, with the show and the arc and what happens to people and so on and so forth. And... Um, Anyway, long story short. Um, Wait, hold on, because yeah. we want to keep them waiting. That's a perfect time to take a little break. <laughs> Make sure they won't go away, so you can come back in a minute and find out what happened next. Spoiler <laughs> alerts after Spoiler that. alert. <laughs> Judge Victoria Kolakowski, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Alameda County, California, became the seat of the first openly transgender trial judge in the U.S., after Victoria Kolakowski was elected on November 2, 2010. The big news was her transgender status was never an issue during her campaign. She had transitioned from male to female in the 1980s while attending Louisiana State University. Kolakowski had served as a lawyer for 21 years and an administrative law judge for the past four. Originally prohibited from taking her bar exam because of her transgender status, she faced discrimination as a lawyer but she never forgot these words, which she said at her confirmation. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I am not for others, then what am I? And if not now, when? 
Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Ted Heck. Hello, I'm Kristen Beck and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine out front and out loud since 1974. On KPFK FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest and China Lake, 93.7 in San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I am Steve Pride. I'm Matthew McLaughlin. And I'm Marla Bernier, guest hostess for... IMRU. IMRU. Well, that's the first thing we should have taught you, at least at some point during the show, the name of the show. Well, we're back with Marlo. You were saying... Yes. So the pilot went out for consideration to a couple of people. And um, we just kept going. And then we got a call a few months ago from the executive director of Hollywood Film Festival asking us if we would like to screen at Hollywood Film Festival. And to which we said yes. And we got the date and so on and so forth. There's been a lot of work getting it ready. Um, We went back into post, fixed a couple of, tweaked a couple of small things and ready to go on to the big screen. It's It's going to screen Wednesday night in its world premiere at the Arclight Hollywood uh, Auditorium Number 8 at 7 p.m., along with uh, two other... Lesser sh- shorts. Well, short <laughs> short subject narratives or whatever. One's a, do- a doc and one's a part of a series or something. And one is called Sid, about the uh, really um, famous uh, female soccer player, Sydney. And the other one is called The Find, and it's a two-part or two parts of a series that they're air, that they're screening that night along with us. Fantastic. So, yeah. That's very generous of you to talk about the other films. It's, you know, that's who we are. We, it, everybody wins, everybody wins. Right? Shout outs for our sisters. Yeah. Are you feeling personally the, the, the global change with, uh, you know, from, from having first started pitching it to now uh, with, with um, Caitlin and, uh, you know, the, the huge visibility of trans people or not so much? I mean, you know, Everybody sees things through their own prism, right? Through their own refracted glass, let's say. So um, Myrna's story, yeah, it's based loosely on my life, but it's obviously some theatrical license. Otherwise, you'd be asleep by now. (laughs) Are you asleep by now? (laughs) And, um, uh, you know, Myrna is, the way I like to put it, is that Myrna is a woman in the throes of her transition, of her gender journey, from male, anatomically speaking, to female, anatomically speaking. And she doesn't want to, she wants that behind her. She wants her transsexualism. She doesn't want to continuously or perpetually reside at the cross streets of transsexual and transgender. Mm -hmm. She wants to reside in her womanhood. And again, operative word being her, as in belonging to her, it's the way that I felt as as a little kid. My my innate femaleness. My I was a little kid. I was four. It was nineteen sixty three. Need I continue? I'm old. But the bottom line is, is that that's how I saw it. So I'm my story or Myrna's story is based on my experience, and I want we want as producers uh, and writers of the show to reach out 
in a broader sense, but we want to do justice by that. So when we do have episodes upcoming where it talks or deals with people of color or, you know, uh, female to male trans men, for lack of a better term, men who are men of trans experience, we want to bring people that know what the hell they're talking about to the table because I can't speak to that personally. How mm. could I possibly and do it justice? By the same token, the same thing with what Bambi was talking about earlier, you know, we want to be inclusive to the entire spectrum, but I can't do that alone, mm -hmm. and nor can any of the writers currently. You know, we need, again, I'm not asking for people to send spec scripts because we're not ready for that, but when it comes time, we will reach out to yeah. specific people who have a voice in that community, respectively, and then also people that respond to Myrna as a show overall, other, sure. you know, other, in other words. Yeah. I think it's such a great concept. I mean, Myrna wants to put things behind her, and yet she's an actress with a body of work that she can't just ignore, because otherwise she's starting over at <laughs> an older age. Right, <laughs> a way older age. And you've got a world of experience that that is still valid. And you have amazing people in this show. I've got to, I've got to mention, you have such a cast. Yeah, they're good. They're really good. We can go down the list from... Uh, I'll start backwards to forwards or whatever. Candace Kane plays Myrna's mentor by the name of Holland Hollis. Paul McKinney plays Myrna's manager, L.L. Lewis. Uh, Julie Carmen of Gloria by John Cassavetes. Um, John Cassavetes' film Gloria in 1972, she won the, the Best Supporting Actress Award at Venice. Not Venice, California, Venice, yeah, across the, the pond, Venice. Venice. <laughs> um, nothing wrong with Venice down the street, by the way. And, <laughs> That's um, where nobody lives, so be careful. Mark Atterbury, who you've seen thousands of things from, and um, my producing partner and uh, partner in crime, Jennifer Fontaine, with whom I have made multiple pictures over 11 years. So this is not our first time at the plate, so to speak. Yeah. So. Um, we're very proud of the work. We have a great producing team from Marcy Leroff um, to Christine D. Beattie to Heather Marie Piper to Kristen Beck, who you just had on, to uh, Alexia Valdez, uh, to Janice Danielle. I know I'm going to forget somebody because I'm trying to do this all from memory, and my memory's a little shot at 56. But, <laughs> um, a lot of you know, a lot of people that put their heart and soul and their money where their mouth was and is. Uh, behind this show to get it made. You should have brought some notes because you knew there was a chance you would win this award tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Watching the Emmys last night, they seem confused. Like, did they know why they're there? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, um, you know, we, we all believed in the project and we were looking for a series pickup. We don't see why there's any reason why, we don't see that there's any reason why Myrna isn't picked up, period. I'll say it now. Right. Amazon, it. are you listening? Because some of your I pilots weren't that good. Not as good as this. So, thank you. You're very, very, very kind. Have well, you... I'm just because because you actually dog sat for my little mouse, my <laughs> chihuahua, when I was at Comic Con. I'm hoping that if it gets picked up, he'll end up being hired to play himself in a later episode. <laughs> I c I could think of nothing better, Steve Price. Uh, I'd probably get a younger, sexier dog to play him. It's Hollywood. 
Well, you can certainly practice the the uh, acceptance speech now if you want. I'm sure it's glorious. <laughs> my acceptance speech is simply "Thanks for letting me work again." That's my, my that's my acceptance speech. Fantastic. Well, give us information on how we can get more information. Sure. So the website for Myrna is MyrnaTVShow.com. That's the main off Facebook and so on website. MyrnaTVShow.com. The Myrna Twitter page is at Myrna TV Show. The Myrna Facebook page is facebook.com slash Myrna TV Show. Everything is Myrna TV Show. It's really impossible not to not to find easily. Yeah. And you can IMDB, which is the Internet Movie Database, which will give you a whole slew of information of all the names that I did leave out. Uh-huh. Um, and remind us, where's playing again and what times? Okay, so Wednesday, this Wednesday. In, at 7 p.m. at the Arclight in Studio 8. In, in, good. in Very good. She's very good, it, Maddie. Girl. Very good. Thank you. Uh, that's uh, Theater 8 or Auditorium 8. You right. said Studio 8 at the Arclight <laughs> in Hollywood on Sunset and... Uh, Sunset and Vine. That's Vine, right? Yeah. Um, at the world-famous Arclight Theater in the Hollywood, in the 19th Annual Hollywood Film Festival. 19th annual. Fantastic. Pretty good. Well, in some of our promos for tonight's show, we had advertised that another friend of ours was dropping by, Zachary Drucker, who is a producer on Transparent, which won five wow. awards last night. So Good there were times. a lot of after parties, and I Zachary bet. is not feeling up to stuff oh, tonight. I'm sorry. He's got a really bad sore throat. <laughs> so we are instead going to air my interview with Justin Vivian Bond. This is Justin Vivian Bond, and uh, I'm excited to be here. Justin Vivian Bond, formerly simply Justin Bond, is an American singer-songwriter, performance artist, actor, and a fixture of the New York avant-garde. Bond is also the author of the Lambda Literary award-winning memoir, Tango, My Childhood, Backwards, and in High Heels. Some of you might recognize Justin Vivian Bond from the John Cameron Mitchell film, Short Bus. What are you looking at? Nothing. Um, Jamie and James told me to come here. What's your name? Sophia. Oh, Sophia. I'm Justin Bond. I'm the mistress of Short Bus. Come on. Do you know what a short bus is? No. You've heard of the big yellow school bus. Well, this is the short one. It's a salon for the gifted and challenged. Hiya. You like acting? I don't like it that much. It's not really that fun for me, but uh, I think I'm good at it. But I don't really find that many roles that are worth the effort for me. I think uh, a lot of people are trying to escape from who they are into something else. And I've spent my entire life trying to escape who I'm supposed to be in order to be who I really am. So um, acting isn't really that exciting for me. Although, as I said, I'm good at it because I did it for years in the straight world, (laughs) as they say. (laughs) Justin Vivian Bond first shot to fame as Kiki Durain, the aging alcoholic female lounge singer in the cult cabaret duo Kiki and Herb. Well, that song was originally recorded by the singing nun. She killed herself. Now, a lot of you may be aware of the fact that, you know, she was a singing nun. But I don't know if any of you people also happen to know that not only was she a nun, but she was also a lesbian. It's very difficult to be a lesbian and a nun, although not unheard of. 
but to be a lesbian and a nun in show business. That's where the trouble started. So I'd like you all to just take a moment, and I want you to take a moment and think about that singing nun. And I want you to think about all the happy hours you've received from the singing nun. And then I want you to ask yourselves, what the hell did you ever do for her? Well, I created Kiki, I guess in 91 or 92, and then uh, within the year of creating Kiki, I was working with Kenny and he had become Herb. Then we were Kiki and Herb until uh, 2008, and then uh, we broke up the act, and uh, then I was Kiki again last week. I was... um, I was a special guest in a Scissor Sisters concert in New York, and they sang their song, Let's Have a Kiki. And so I put on the Kiki costume and came out and surprised the audience and gave them a Kiki. And then Kiki died at the end of the song. It was very tragic. I don't even think people knew what happened. She died, and then the lights went out, and it was like she jumped from a fourth floor of a shopping mall atrium and landed by a... Pete's coffee and was quickly put under a pup tent and whisked away. I'm very sad to hear about Kiki's passing. And it's a how, tragedy, but I, I think it's for the best. How know. would she like to be remembered? I think she'd like to be remembered as someone who... <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> her epitaph is, if I could love, I would love you all. And those were her last words. And then she died. And then she died, yeah. Mm. Well, I think it was first she said, you call that dancing? And then if I could love, I would love you all was the last thing she said. At least she went out doing something she, she did. loved. She did, exactly. She was doing what she loved, showing other people how much more she knew than they did. Kiki had issues. I think Kiki's rage stemmed from, you know, my own traumatization by the world that I was living in, San Francisco in the early 90s, so many of my friends were dying, and she was cathartic, so I'd get all this rage out, and I would be in performances, and I would throw open windows and nightclubs and scream out at the streets, don't get too comfortable, and everyone in the audience could understand exactly what I was talking about. And then, you know, 9-11 came along, and I was a New Yorker, and I had some things to say about that, but at a certain point, it did become a psychic drain, being so angry all the time, and now I get to be you know, just so light and carefree. We had done the show for a lot longer than I had ever intended to do it, and um, I was just tired of it. And it took so much energy to maintain that. It was a career, you know, and uh, I thought, well, I can't keep doing this if I want to do anything else with my life. And we had starred in Carnegie Hall. We'd starred off-Broadway. We'd done Broadway. We'd been nominated for Tony. And I couldn't really see any more, you know, goals for that character, and and I had actually exceeded my creative interest in it. But at that point, it was just about doing things to say that we had done them. Because part of the reason that I became a performer was, in queer performing, was uh, that uh, I was a member of ACT UP in the early 90s, and it was all about queer visibility. And that sort of, in a certain way, gave me uh, kind of a mission. So bringing Kiki and Herb to... Carnegie Hall twice and to Broadway and to all of those places was for me a kind of a political challenge more so than a creative one and so even though I was really into it creatively and I we were brought there because we were I think good at what we did I kept doing that one thing to get 
to a certain point. And then once that had happened, I thought, okay, I don't have anything to prove to anyone in that regard. So now I'm more serving my own creative impulses and, and my own muse. And, and I've been a lot more um, satisfied creatively since I quit doing that. And as your last breath begins, contently take it in, cause we all get it in the end. I'm Steve Pride. This is IMRU, and we're talking to Justin Vivian Bond. Tell me about your book. Well, my book is called Tango, My Childhood Backwards and in High Heels. And the reason I wrote it was because I had uh, recently been diagnosed with ADD. And I started looking back at my childhood through a different filter. And I was thinking about, uh, at the same time I was diagnosed with ADD, a neighbor boy who was my age, who was grown by that point, was arrested outside of our hometown for impersonating a drug enforcement agent on I-81 in between Martinsburg, West Virginia and Hagerstown. And uh, they said he had bipolar disorder and delusions of grandeur. And I thought, I think he had signs of those things when we were children as well. And we were lovers from the time we were 11 until we were 15 I had just turned 16, and I was telling the story to Amy Shoulder at the Feminist Press, and she said, that would make an interesting book. You should write it, and I did. You were a glamorous child. Lipstick was one of the first things that was something glamorous that I was drawn to. The thing I was initially drawn to that I've always loved since I can remember my first consciousness about a glamour item was shoes, and I had a... A dream when I was very young, which I just recently realized was a dream. When you're a kid, you don't really know if it happened or not. But I had these two pairs of shoes that were my shoes that I had been playing with. And my dad had built this trap door under our stairs with a hidden compartment, which he really did build. But I was convinced that one night when I was asleep, they put my shoes and locked them in this little safe, secret spot that I couldn't get to. But as it turns out, that was actually a dream. But of course, in a sort of uh, Jungian analysis, you know, it was like my parents putting my fantasies and my identity in this little spot. And so I always loved shoes, but I've always loved lipstick as well, and I would wear it whenever I got the chance. I've learned not to label people, but even if I wanted to, with you, I couldn't. You're labelless. I don't think of myself as labelless. I think of myself as everything. I don't feel like I'm limited my imagination isn't so small that I can't imagine myself in a lot of different ways, but I don't like being expected or forced to be any certain way. I um, I enjoy expressing myself in a more feminine way because I feel like I'm just naturally a little bit, you know, I like have a kind of willowiness about me, and that might be why I love trees so much, and willow trees especially. When I die, I want to be cremated and buried in a hole and have a willow tree planted on top of me that says, Here lies Mix Justin Vivian Bond, forever shady. Explain Mix. Mix is sort of an honorific because I don't feel Mr. or Ms. or Miss. They don't apply to me. So I wanted something that was everything, so I chose Mix, M-X. And explain your personal pronoun. V is a symbol that is two equal sides that meet in the middle. And so I just chose V. And uh, 
just because of that, I think, you know, and a kind of a, if it, it was in a cave, people might understand it. So I was trying to make it as simple as possible because a lot of um, people do have kind of very um, prehistoric ideas of what gender is or should be. And so uh, if they're that behind the learning curve, let's make it simple and give them a V. You refer to yourself as trans. Oh, I'm not transitioning. I'm transgender. In other words, I bridge I'm not going from one place to the other. I'm just there. And I don't feel the need to go anywhere, but I don't want to be stuck anywhere either. So you check all the boxes. Well, I'd like to just have one that says T. And Australia, their passports now have one that says X, which I'm perfectly fine with as well. I just feel like there needs to be one category that's neither man nor woman for the rest of us. Certain people that are trans-identified are trans-identified until they're woman or man, you know, because they really identify within a binary thing. And so they have their bodies uh, surgically changed to meet who they feel they are, which is great. It's perfect. And those people should be allowed to put male or female. If they identify strongly as male or female, no matter what genitalia they're born with, I think they should have the right to do that. But for people like me who don't want to be in any of those categories, I think it would be nice if we had one for ourselves, too. You released a new album this summer, Silver Wells. What do you hope listeners take away from it? (laughs) This has been a conversation with mixed Justin Vivian Bond. For more information, visit justinbond.com. V is also in the new film Sunset Stories, which is currently wowing audiences on the Film Fest circuit. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I'd work for you. I'd even slave for you I'd be a beggar or a knave for you And if that isn't love, you don't have to do Until the real thing comes along Until the real thing comes along (laughs) Thank you, Viv Well, that's the end of our ride Gather your personal courage Take timid politicos by the hand And... Exit to the far, far, far left of the trans forward motion. And our great thanks tonight to our director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, coordinating producer Steve Pride, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. And I want to thank our special celebrity co-host tonight, who was so gracious to step in, Marlo Bernier. Thank you. Thank you. And I want you to follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted by noon every Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday. When we get around to okay. it. Don't yeah, judge. To do in the morning. Don't judge. We're going to close with a song from Our Lady J called Elegance. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night. Here lies a girl who swallowed her sharpest swords just to show you that she Nothing to you And the soft of her breast And the sweet of her song Meant nothing to you What else was she to do? She said, 
culture, polish, performance, taste, and ignorance.